From the University of Notre Dame, this is With a Side of Knowledge. I'm your host, Ted Fox. The idea behind this show is pretty simple. A university campus is a destination for all kinds of interesting people, representing all kinds of research specialties and fields of expertise. So why not invite some of these folks out to brunch? Yes, I said brunch, where we'll have an informal conversation about their work, and then I'll turn those brunches into a podcast. It's a tough job, but somebody has to do it. With the Side of Knowledge is supported by Soren's Restaurant inside Notre Dame's Morris Inn, which serves breakfast and lunch seven days a week and dinner Tuesday through Saturday. If you see us recording, feel free to stop by and say hi, preferably not when we're chewing. Madeline Highland is an actress, singer, and writer who has appeared in numerous theater productions across the UK, including the Royal Shakespeare Company's Olivier and Tony Award-winning Wolf Hall and Bring Up the Bodies, which played in the West End and on Broadway. Madeline visited campus with actors from the London stage, one of the oldest touring Shakespeare theater companies in the world. Coordinated by Shakespeare at Notre Dame, the company is cast in London and rehearses there, then tours their performance to colleges and universities across the United States. In their recent production of Hamlet, Madeline played the title role as well as two other parts. That's where we started our conversation, with what it's like to inhabit multiple characters in the same show. And then we went on to discuss the magical transformation that takes place when the bard's words come to life off the page. Madeline and I also talked about her favorite Shakespearean roles, the differences between acting for the stage and for the screen, and her band, The Amazing Devil. We spent some time on pubs and bars, too, which was way more on topic than it sounds. Madeline Highland, welcome to With a Side of Knowledge. Hi. <laughs> Actors from the London stage, which is who you're, the part of the troupe that you're here uh, performing Hamlet with, it's yeah. a five-person troupe, meaning you have five people to play all the roles in the play. And I know this isn't, um, you play Hamlet, mm-hmm. the lead role, as well as Marcellus and Fortinbras. Yeah. I know you've done something similar earlier this year at the Factory Theater um, in their production of Macbeth. And I'm wondering, to someone from the outside, is this as difficult as it sounds to play <laughs> this many roles in one play? Um, it's, it's pretty challenging, but... I suppose there's a kind of delight that comes with it. So I suppose as soon as you just plug into the fun of it, mm-hmm. then you're fine. You know, um, I love what it does to the show because it immediately lifts it into uh, a non-literal realm. Mm-hmm. So it means that the audience can then engage with so many other things in the play as well that that are completely non-literal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like the fact that there's a woman playing a man's role and, you know, all this stuff. Mm-hmm. So... Um, so yeah, it's fun. It's definitely it requires a physical precision that um, that is not something I've had to really deal with in the factory before. Because okay. in the factory we tend to uh, learn a lot of roles, but then you'll be cast, generally speaking, just in one for the whole okay. show, and you don't usually have to do too much doubling within a scene. Because <laughs> you're actually which having is a feature. I was going to say, so in yeah. this production of Hamlet, you're actually having scenes. Where you're playing two mm. characters who are on stage at the same time. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> it's really, it's really good fun. I think the last time I had to do that was in the the Wolf Hall uh, understudy run, where I was playing Anne Boleyn and Mary Boleyn and 
I don't know, Jane Seymour or something, all at the same time. And but that's but again, there's this charm that comes with that because um, you know we had a director, our assistant director for that show, come out at the beginning of the show and just have a chat to the audience and say, look, this is what you're going to see today. And and the audience are so generous, and they, um, I think, certainly if there's something I've learned over my last sort of 15 years or whatever it is, it, it's that. You know, if you invite the audience to come with you on a journey or to play play a game with a convention, they're, they're usually more than happy to, you know, and and it's uh, it kind of unites you in a, in a in a very special way that is very unique to a live experience, I think, you know, um, and it's kind of brings me back to why we do theatre rather than just recording everything, even though I know, I'm, I'm all for recording things too. <laughs> you know, like, I didn't take personal offence, not at all. <laughs> How would you describe, <laughs> this sounds like a huge question, how would you describe Hamlet to someone coming to the play for the first time or maybe someone who hasn't thought about Hamlet since they read it in a high school English class? What, 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 is this, what is this play to you, if you were trying to describe it? It's a play about someone who is dealing with some really big human situations you know his dad has just died that's number one number two his mother has then just married his I mean this is not spoilers this will happen within the first scene so it's fine you know and it's um, been around for it's been around for a while 500 years or so so yeah <laughs> no. uh, number two uh, his mother has then immediately got married to his uncle his father's brother and uh and so I think those two things alone would be the basis of a really <laughs> interesting play. And then, but then number three, uh, you know, he's a student who has been at school in Wittenberg, so he's been studying, I assume, you know, uh, Protestant religious texts, which say that there's no purgatory. And then suddenly, the ghost of his dead father <laughs> comes to him and says, "I'm stuck in purgatory." <laughs> Please avenge my death. So immediately you've got these three big setups. The payoff for those things can only be extraordinary. <laughs> so, so those are three big, huge hooks within the first what fifteen minutes, mm-hmm. ten, fifteen minutes, um, and and you know, and also he's in love with a beautiful girl, and you know, he, that there are so many ways that it could work out fine, but it, it doesn't. But I suppose along the way, uh, what he discovers about himself. And the questions that he then asks about the nature of of the self and the and and what happens after we die and these questions keep powering him through the play to uh, and and on a on a journey sort of that goes deeper and deeper inside those questions that we all ask ourselves deep in the middle of the night and um, which get right to the essence of of what on earth we're doing here, you know, yeah. and and so those are those are really fun questions to uh, to both be asked of by someone on stage and to ask an audience when you're on stage and to to have that conversation to ask those questions and really mean them and really think about them and really then be asking the audience to think about them. That's a really fun game which people have been wanting to play for, yeah. <laughs> for over 400 years. So I I, I don't see it. I don't see it losing its popularity anytime soon, as long as we are, as long as we are willing to do that in a work. You know, as long as we are, uh, 
as as human beings interested in 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 what else which is not a given you know there are definitely times when people don't want to ask those questions for understandable reasons you know life gets tough and people just want to survive and that's also totally understandable but i think i think ultimately that they're, they're they're the questions that we ask when we are facing death in any form, aren't they? So I guess we either ask them when we're facing death itself or we ask them before that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I suppose what I, what I really love about Hamlet is that he's willing to face it. You know, he's, he's met by this extraordinary experience of meeting his father's ghost and he doesn't back away from it. He goes, right, I'm going to look at this. And I think... Maybe this is a very broad generalisation, but I think in, in Western culture in general, we're, death is something that we don't really want to deal with. And we kind of put it away and try not to talk about it. And I think our grieving processes are pretty shoddy for the most part. And Hamlet goes, no, you know, I, I, I think he despises hypo- hypo- hypocrisy more than, more than anything. And the hypocrisy of denying death is something he goes, he goes, no, <laughs> no, I yeah. want to look at it. I, and, I, and I will leap into graves to find out what it is and, and look, at, look at it and stare at it in the eyes and, and, and see what's on the other side, yeah. you know. If, if you were to kind of think about what is a real common misconception that you feel like people, audiences, whatever, when they're thinking about Shakespeare in the abstract and thinking about his work in the abstract, what, what would that be? Sure. So I think um, I think it comes down to to a few things. I think uh, I think the way that that Shakespeare is taught at school uh, and poetry in general, really, um, has suffered a, a, a terrible. It's undergone a terrible process, I think, in the twentieth century, um, which is a legacy, I think, of. The, the Victorian sort of way of looking at things mm-hmm. so uh, and and, um, and of the Industrial Revolution and the, the British Empire to a certain extent you know wanting to to, to sort of clamp down on certain values and and, uh, and in a way to to make education into this thing that is very much only f- perceived as being for the elite mm-hmm. rather than for for everyone. Um, I think Shakespeare, when he was writing, was using uh, poetry and memorable language in the same way that great folk song writers uh, use language. You know, he's he's wanting to make it memorable so that it will stick in your head, and so that you can so that you can be taught it almost without without reading it. You know, uh, I was reading. Is it the Poetry Out Loud Festival over here in the states? I'm not sure. It's really yeah. fantastic. Um, I was reading an amazing article about it where they 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 started to they started a competition where they got um, where they got kids to just learn poetry by memory by so learn it off by heart and then they would have a big old competition within the school with with kids uh, just you know reading this poetry out yeah. uh, just just off by heart sorry I'm right. not making words very well <laughs> it's early in the morning um, and. Apparently, the so the perceived notion, you know, when they were applying to the funders, they were all saying, "No, no, no, this will never appeal. You'll only get the really bright kids wanting to do this." But actually, it was the it was the total opposite. It was the uh, it was the kids um, who had 
often felt like poetry wasn't accessible mm-hmm. to them and English as a second language speakers and all yep. sorts that, that suddenly grabbed this project and, and made it their own and then it was this huge hit across loads of different states and, um, and I think so I think there's I think when Shakespeare is just taught dryly on the page that's when it's really boring because you're also you're asking your rational mind to analyse and engage with something that is not purely rational it is poetic and it is speaking to your unconscious body and your shadow self and your 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 poetic magical self and when you when you say the words out loud and when you start saying them and meaning them and when you when you learn them off by heart it does something to you that that hooks you for life you know I was doing a project uh, at Shakespeare's Globe in the education department where we were going into uh, local schools and so we had like a class each to do a scene each and then we strung the whole of Midsummer Night's Dream together and um, and I had a bunch of seven-year-olds and we were doing Oberon and Titania you know Ill Met by Moonlight and I really stuck to my guns and I said I don't want to cut this scene yeah. and and all of my supervisors were like no 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 you have to cut it you have to and I was like no, <laughs> and and um, and so I, you know, I, I divided the speech up so you know each bunch of kids only had four or five lines to speak. But what I found was was that they all ended up learning the whole thing anyway because they just got used to hearing it. And I walked back into the classroom. I mean, a when they did the show, they were wonderful and remembered the whole thing and it was glorious. But when I walked back into the classroom three months later to go and say hi, I walked in and they immediately all just started reciting it at me. The whole of Titania's big speech about, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the earth coming apart. So if seven-year-olds can do it, yeah. then anyone mm-hmm. can do it. And it's literally then a matter of getting over whatever block it is in oneself that says, oh, no, I can't. This isn't for me. Once you allow yourself to, to not understand it all, Mm-hmm. then you can go on a real ride, you know. Um, I think I think understanding with the rational mind is a little overrated <laughs> in our society. I don't disagree <laughs> at all. Um, this might be a little unfair to ask, but it's kind of related to what you were talking about, a very different age group. But this tour that you're getting ready to go on with actors from the London stage, mm-hmm. I know there's an educational component to it. Can you talk a little bit about that, what what your understanding is that you'll be doing when you go to these different university campuses? Yeah. Uh, so my understanding is that we will, at the beginning of the week, we'll get a whole bunch of classes and we'll divvy them up between the five of us. And, I mean, we will be delivering whatever the teachers sort of ask right. us to deliver. Um, but I think generally through the lens of Shakespeare or speaking out loud uh, right. what it is to communicate and um, in all kinds uh, of different disciplines right it's not just like you're going to theater classes it's yeah. you might go to an accounting class yeah. or whatever <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah yeah um but i figure you know shakespeare is is such a great um such a great starting point you can do a, a workshop on two lines of text you know, and mm-hmm. and it can still open up and up and up and up yeah. and up. Um, I think whatever discipline we're involved in, we're all we're all human beings, and we all we all like communicating. <laughs> and that's what yeah. Shakespeare is really good yeah. at, at teaching us how to right. do. You know, in addition to Hamlet, right now mm-hmm. you played Macbeth mm-hmm. and Lady Macbeth. Yeah, you played <laughs> Mercutio and Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, Titania and Hippolyta and A Midsummer Night's Dream. And the, I mean, when I was looking at your CV, it it goes on, and I'm wondering. 
do you have a favorite Shakespearean character that you have played? Is there one role for you that was... They're all great. This is the one that really sticks with me as something that was really a special experience to be able to inhabit that character. Oh, goodness. And as I'm asking you this, I'm feeling like (laughs) the whole thing, like when the old joke of like, it's like asking you to pick among your children, which one is your favorite child? It really is. So I suppose uh, Cymbeline was the play that... uh, So when I first finished training in New Zealand, I then did a masterclass with Tim Carroll, who is now the head of the Shaw Festival in Canada. And within a week, well, I mean, within about 10 minutes, really, he suddenly clarified exactly what the difference between verse and prose is and how Shakespeare was applying them and how to how to really go into bat for the verse, as he calls it. You know, so like Shakespeare was writing in verse, so, so how to fully kind of commit to that yeah. in the trust that the, the performance will knock you off anyway. I hear a lot of actors going, yeah, but I want to do it my way, you know? And... <laughs> And I kind of go, uh, and, and what Tim was really amazing at, at implementing in me was this thing of going, well, what if there's more to you than you think, you know? And if you mm-hmm. give your rational mind something to focus on, like the verse, like do, like really doing the verse, mm-hmm. the angels get a word in edgewise, right? So <laughs> yeah. all, all the unconscious parts of you get to get to your, your gut impulses get right. to then meet this thing that you're that you're engaging with. So that was a that was a huge revelation and he also told us about this production of Hamlet that he was doing in Budapest at the time where they were getting actors to learn multiple roles and then casting at the last minute and the audience were bringing all the props in. And I think Ken Campbell had already done a, a Macbeth actually in Pigeon English in the West End where he'd got all the actors to learn every role and then the audience were to cast the play um, by observing all the actors at the beginning of the show doing a hacker and uh, and they cast Macbeth according to who they felt the ancestors were moving through that evening. Oh, so, wow. you know, yeah, so so Tim's work was I think borrowing a little from that and and now it's all over the West End, you know, there's yep. there's all sorts of projects going on where actors are learning two roles and then casting because I think, you know, it really uh, it nails in this live experience so anyway so uh, I did that masterclass and then immediately I was like okay so I have to make I have to make a company so I got 10 actors together from my drama school class and we put on a production of Cymbeline in a local Irish pub Um, (laughs) it was a converted church so it had that sense of kind of being in the round and that's something that I really um, I really love you know I mean working at the Globe was a revelation because you you immediately see what that what that does to the play and to the conditions of, of performance because you're you're not only as, a, as an audience member you're not only having your own experience you're having because you're so aware because you can see everyone you're then so aware of everyone else's experience as well so it's like your own experience get, gets multiplied by a hundred or by a thousand you know or whatever so it's just like really good three-dimensional training for your mm-hmm. brain you know mm-hmm. <laughs> it sort of lifts everything up um so anyway so we were doing Cymbeline and I was playing Imogen and or well Imogen or Caius Lucius in that production you know I suppose there were initial worries within the cast as to whether we would all get you know become these egomaniacs and become horribly in competition with each other but yeah. the opposite happened you know we we really um because we were always observing what each other were doing, we could then we could then take each other's performance and then build on it. So it was like both both performances got better and better and better as the show went on, and that really stuck with me. You know, that was that was wonderful. I suppose after that, I had a year last uh, last year 
year before where I played Mercutio and then a third of Time of Athens when we took Time of Athens to Wales with the factory. And I was also playing a sort of character that I call Scarlet Scarlet with my band, The Amazing Devil. And I want to ask you about that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but that was, uh, that was another real turning point in terms of uncovering what, what Mercutio and Time right. and Scarlet Scarlet asked of me was this, to, to bring out uh, some of the some of the nastiest sides of my personality, mm-hmm. you know, and some yeah. of the some of the more uh, cutting and cruel and angry, mm-hmm. you know, uh, parts of myself that are, are, are things that uh, I, I think I suppressed for quite yeah. a long time. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so, and, and now I'm now finding that those are coming in really handy with with Hamlet because mm-hmm. Hamlet has a cruelty in him that. I don't know if I would have been able to access without having gone through those parts. But coming back to why Cymbeline is my favourite play. So it's this sort of turning point play. And we called our theatre company Peripatea because it because it because of that sense of it being a turning point in, in Shakespeare's sort of journey where he he stops killing the heroine and he it's the first play where he tries to save her. And and it's kinda of clunky, but it's sort of it's also beautiful and I think there's something about this late place with Cymbeline and the Winter's Tale where I feel like those are the those are the images I want to multiply in the world. Do you know what I mean? In terms of providing a, a template for how how we make peace and move forward after devastation. I think those are those feel like the, the really necessary place to me. You recently made your television debut playing Lady Crowley in the new <laughs> adaptation of William Makepeace Thackeray's classic novel, Vanity Fair. Yeah. And I'm wondering, how do you find the experience of acting for television compares to acting for the stage? I suppose it's just the, the, the time distorts differently, doesn't it? So, um, so when, you're, when you're making a piece of theatre, you have four weeks or you know well you have some rehearsal time anyway to to get to know everyone and uh whereas with television it's it's super quick it's like you you your brain has to go into like sprinting mode in terms of but but also stay incredibly relaxed you know you can spend a long time in a trailer and then suddenly it's it's you and you've got to get through these (laughs) these scenes and then those things are going to be that are recorded are then going to last forever and ever so it's like the, it's sort of the reverse yeah. you know but only in terms of in terms of your perception of, of time in a way so I think thank you so much it, re- it required just uh, another level of of trust in myself that what I was bringing to the table was enough and that I'd done the work necessary to be able to then just just make some choices in the moment and uh, or change them very quickly, you know, to offer the editor some different things. Because I was, I was only playing a very small part, but I was lucky in that, you know, the director was really um, specifically keeping an eye on, on my choices and, and letting me know whether that was what they wanted or not or whether they wanted me to, um, to push it in a slightly different direction. So, uh, so yeah, it's fascinating. But it, I suppose the, the biggest difference is that you are you're just looking towards this single eye whereas in the theatre you need to 
you need to stay open to everyone and you know and especially working in the round as I love to do you're always thinking in this kind of three-dimensional way and it's much more about I find making sure that your voice is is heard you know because because theatre audiences as long as they can hear you they'll they'll pretty much be happy you know so it's it, it feels more like like singing in a way in the theatre whereas whereas for the screen it's like I, I found that my my experience working in a bar <laughs> actually came oh. in really handy in that, so I used to work in this great bar called the French House which you, if you're ever in Dean Street in Soho in London you have to go to the most wonderful little tiny pub in the world and the the bar sort of sticks out a little bit so mm-hmm. and what was it called again? the French House French House yeah. okay yeah <laughs> Uh, used to be the Yorkminster, but it was run by a Frenchman. Okay. So, well, he was actually Belgian. But he, everyone thought he was French. And the French Resistance used to meet there during the war. And yeah, Dylan wow. Thomas and, and um, I think Sylvia Plath even went there. And like a whole, it's got this whole history. You know, Francis Bacon. They all these amazing artists and people used to drink there. So it's it's sort of the the last. They kind of call it the last bastion of old so old Bohemian Soho. You know, so it's brilliant. Anyway, but yeah, this this bar would kind of. I mean, a it was tiny, <laughs> but but it would sort of it was it would go out a bit, so it was a little bit like being on a thrust stage. The moment when you, <laughs> I feel like I'm going to get very personal here. The, the, the moment where you you know you clock someone walking in the room who you have a crush on, or or who is the love of your life or whatever, and then the 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 awareness that you have of 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 just that one person's eye mm-hmm. uh, and and yet simultaneously knowing that you have to be aware of all of the technical needs of all these, <laughs> these other people that need to, right. <laughs> to, to to have their drinks served yeah. Yeah. but you're still but you've still got your eye on this one guy mm-hmm. you know um, and you want to make sure that he's seeing your best side you know or that yeah. he's seeing what you what you, you want him to see of, of you that felt very akin to being on a set where you've got kind of 50 people around you all with a job to do and you're kind of trying to make sure that everyone is is happy but but the camera is the one that that you that you're really giving everything to and kind of flirting with you know yeah and in the sense that you that at the end of the day the only thing that matters is what the camera picks up of of your performance you know you can be you can be having the biggest internal process going on in the world or but if the cam- if it doesn't reach the camera, then then it's absent forever and ever, and only the the other fifty or sixty people in the room who are probably focused on something else anyway. It's a great analogy. Well, no, it's perfect. No, that makes complete sense. <laughs> but but it was a it was a because screen acting was a bit of a mystery to me, um, and then to be on set and kind of go, oh, this reminds me of something, <laughs> was quite a revelation. Yeah. So. The last question before we eat, and it, it came up a little bit earlier. You mentioned your band, The Amazing Devil. Yeah. <laughs> I'm wondering, you're the front woman for that band, and you said you play the character Scarlet Scarlet as part of performing in the band. Can you tell us a little bit about your music as well as the name? Because I think people always love band names and where band names come from. <laughs> so both of those pieces, what kind of music you guys do and, and where your name came from. Uh, yeah, I love the story. So... <laughs> So the band was formed by my friend Joey and I when we were doing Wolf Hall for the RSC and we it was like a two-year job, right? So it started in Stratford-upon-Avon and then went into the West End and then went to Broadway and by the end of Stratford, 
you know, because I was understudying seven parts or something, and he had a small, well, no, he had a significant significant small role but it was the kind of show where it, it was it was a little like a one-man show about Cromwell with everyone else orbiting and having a couple of scenes fantastic we, we had a wonderful time but we also had a lot of downtime so we started Joey's a wonderful guitar player and, and a very talented songwriter and we both kind of had a box of songs under the bed that we'd been wanting to do things with for a while uh, so we we got those out and he started tinkering with my things and I started, you know, making suggestions. And so and so we started writing this album. By the time we we finished Broadway, we had a, a sort of whole album ready to go. So as soon as we got back to London, we were like, OK, we have some pennies for almost the first time in our lives saved up from being on Broadway. So let's go and put them all into... <laughs> into recording an album and so we went into a tiny little studio in Stoke Newington which was an ex-button factory and it was a very intense experience to mm-hmm. to go in and and make this album which was kind of it has a sort of narrative to it but yeah so I suppose Scarlet Scarlet and the Blue Furious Boy which are the so Joey's the other co-front mm-hmm. person so and the whole album is full of duets and uh yeah, I suppose when we're when we're doing it, I suppose initially as well, because I'd done a lot of singing before. I'd done jazz singing and had this whole thing with Dexys, but I felt like there was a sort of persona that was coming out in me when I was singing these songs live. And so we started to give her a name, which was Scarlet Scarlet, and it kind of just, it enabled me to then go a lot further. As we've gone on, I feel like, like those boundaries getting a little more blurry now so we're not necessarily playing the characters to such an extent but we may do again you know we may it's also just really fun I mean there's no denying that we're both actors and it's very much a <laughs> a sort of an actor's raging against the world kind of album you know <laughs> um, how would you just des- how would you describe the music itself so it's kind of epic piratey <laughs> folk rock baroque Theatre? Yeah, <laughs> no, I've listened to some of it, so yeah, I would I, I would say that <laughs> I, I like that description. Yeah, it's it's ginormous fun to sing, and we really I've learned a huge amount singing uh, while, while singing about acting, mm. and a, and and you know people often say you know what's more important to you, singing or acting, and I go well no, like they've the more I've done the singing the more it's informed the acting and the more I've acted the more it's informed the singing so they just make each other better the more I do both of them but yeah then we came to the point where we had to find a name Mm -hmm. and we started writing this big big list of names and then so I was living at the time with a five-year-old and an eight-year-old who were both in the the first music video that we made as well which you can find online it's called King Um, thank you very much and there are the two little girls running around the beach and Martha was sitting there drawing and we'd, yeah, I'd already come up with about 50 names and we like, Martha, Martha, Muffles, what should we call the band? And she just looked at us and stopped drawing and she was like, The Amazing Devil. Like it was the most obvious thing How did you in miss the world. That? How did you miss it? And we were like, oh, oh, that's, that's really good. Yeah. <laughs> and, so, and then I sort of went away and came up with like another 50 names and... Joey was still like, no, it's 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 the amazing devil that just is. Yeah. It, it, it has to be. Think on that note, we should have our breakfast. So, <laughs> Madeline Highland, this was a pleasure. Thank you for making time for the show, and best of luck on on tour this fall. Thank you.
With a Side of Knowledge is a production of the Office of the Provost at the University of Notre Dame with support from Soren's Restaurant. Our website is provost.nd.edu slash podcast.